My name's Nathan, coming to you from True Charity. Um, I have my colleague Amanda from True Charity here as well. And for those of you who aren't familiar with our ministry, you might be more familiar with the ministry of Water Gardens, uh, a rescue mission in Joplin, and that's what we grew out of. And so 20 years ago, when Water Gardens was founded, it looked pretty typical. They gave a lot of things away. They saw a lot of the things they gave away end up in pawn shops the next day. There was a lot of frustration involved in that. In retrospect, our founder, James, says he felt like they had a heart for the poor, but not necessarily a mind for the poor. That's where they were. So they did some reading. They made some switches to their model. Very significantly, they started to ask people that came in to receive something to work, to partner with them in exchange for some of what they received. Very generous rate of exchange. You know, we're talking like work for an hour, get a week's worth of food kind of thing, right? But when they did that, they saw two things happen. So number one, fewer people came through the doors. Because there were a lot of people who said, I'm in a total crisis, I'm desperate, I need, I'll need, i do anything. Oh, work for 30 minutes? No, I'm not in that bad of a situation, right? So so that happened. But then the, the second thing that happened, even more importantly, is that the outcome started to improve. More people started to come to Christ. More people started to get employed. In absolute terms, things were improving for people because they were able to invest more deliberately in people's lives who were interested in seeing a change in their own situations. So that's the background. And from that, Water Gardens realized, James realized, you know, these principles can be applied in many different contexts in many different churches and ministries, not just in the rescue mission context. So that is why True Charity exists, to share some of that uh, with you. So I'm going to be talking to you about some of the most foundational principles that I think all Christians need to be aware of. These are things that are coming out of Scripture. I'm going to show you where they are in Scripture as well. Uh, Some of these slides you may find interesting. We'll have an opportunity for you to get the slides after the service. If you give us your email address and the table in the back, then we will get a copy of these slides to you so you don't feel like you have to take a picture of a diagram that you think is helpful. So we're going to start at the very beginning here. We're going to start with this concept of justice. Where do we see justice in scripture let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream here in amos give justice to the weak and the fatherless main to right of the afflicted and the destitute learn to do good seek justice correct oppression bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause the lord of hosts is exalted in justice The Lord is a God of justice. So we see that justice is very important to God in Scripture. It shows up in a lot of places. So what does justice mean? Well, we like to say that truth pertains to what is, and justice is about what ought to be. Justice is about what ought to be. Now, what ought to be is going to depend on the context, right? So in the context of a criminal, maybe justice means punishment. But in the context of poverty, we think what ought to be is shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word that you may have heard before. It shows up all throughout the Bible, and it's usually translated as peace. But shalom actually has a broader meaning. So shalom can mean, in a Bible dictionary, completeness, soundness, peace, safety, health, prosperity, quiet, tranquility, contentment, and friendship with God. That's a pretty big concept, right? You might think of a synonym for that being something like flourishing or thriving. That's what I mean when I say shalom. That is what ought to be in our lives. That is what God intended the world to be like. But of course, we realize that the world is not 
like that. Shalom is broken. Because of the fall of man, things are not as God intended. Now, this leads us to a question. Is there anything we can do about this in the here and now? We know God's going to take care of it in the end, but does God care about it in the present? So let's go a little bit deeper into what this breakdown looks like. We think fundamentally this breakdown is about relationships. There are four fundamental relationships. This comes out of a book called When Helping Hurts. Four fundamental relationships. Every person, the center of the diagram there, has a relationship with God, whether it's a good one or not, a relationship with others, a relationship with him or herself, and a relationship with the rest of creation. And of course, we realize those relationships don't exist in isolation. They also exist in systems. So the religious system of your country, maybe your social system, whether it's more collectivist or more individualist, are your voices represented in the government? Is your economic system, you know, all these things are going to affect you. Even think about economic system. You know that in uh, former communist East Germany, people are more likely to be atheists than in West Germany. Because the government actually had an impact on their relationship with God. Go figure. All these things are interconnected. And when these relationships break down, there can be a host of problems that result from that. Really, you can tie all problems to a breakdown in these relationships. One of those breakdowns is poverty, right? Not having the material things, the connectivity to live the life that God would have intended for you. Now, that can be a result of factors internal to the person or external to the person, usually both. And we see this in scripture. So let's think about two people who on the surface had the same problem. Take the prodigal son and the widow of Zarephath. Both of them were out of food. So on the surface, they've got the exact same problem, right? But a layer deeper, one of them had uh, some sort of internal problems. The prodigal son, what was his problem? Well, he had broken his relationship with his father. He had wasted all of his money away, right? So that's his problem. The widow of Zarephath. Well, there was a, a famine that she didn't cause. She was a widow, so you assume her husband died, right? So there were sort of external factors. On the surface, they both needed food. But deeper down, there was more going on that made their situations different from each other. We see that throughout Scripture. Okay, so what causes poverty? Fundamentally, poverty is the result of relationships that do not work, that are not just, that are not for life, that are not harmonious or enjoyable Poverty is the absence of shalom in all of its meanings. And so if that's the case, then what people need clearly is a little bit more than just money to be handed to them. All right. So this is what we we see poverty is all about. Fundamentally, it's about a breakdown of relationships, right? Now, back to this question, does God think we can do anything about it? Or is it just something we kind of, you know, put off to the end of time? Well, in the Old Testament, we see that God gave his children very specific commands to get engaged with this issue. So in Deuteronomy 15, God tells his people, however, there need be no poor people among you. For in the land, the Lord, your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance. He will richly bless you. If only you fully obey the Lord, your God and are careful to follow all these commands I'm giving you today. If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend to them whatever they need. So in the Old Testament, God looked at his people and said, you can do something about this. As a matter of fact, there need be no poor people among you if you do what I'm telling you to do. Now, of course, we know they didn't do what God told them to do. 
things broke down. But in the New Testament, we see this language being repeated. We see a shadow of this here in Acts chapter four, verse 32. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them. Notice that similarity to Deuteronomy. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, sometimes this passage can make us uncomfortable because sometimes it's used to say things it doesn't mean, right? So it's not talking about uh, a government system here, right, because the government wasn't involved. They're not talking about really an economic system because they're selling their land. They're selling what they need to make money with. So clearly this is a short-term kind of response to some sort of situation. And, of course, we see that they had a really powerful enforcement mechanism because in the next chapter, if you tried to cheat the system, God would strike you dead. That's <laughs> That's how this worked. But what we do see is the Christians of that day felt like it was their responsibility to, at least among the body of Christ, address these material needs. They took those commands of Deuteronomy to heart and what the children of Israel couldn't figure out how to do, they did figure out how to do in their time and place, and they were successful. And this was not just a first century phenomenon. There's actually a great quotation from a Roman Empire, a Roman emperor from the fourth century. He's actually complaining about the Christians. And this emperor says, it is disgraceful... When no Jew is a beggar and the Christians support our poor in addition to their own and everyone is able to see that our co-religionists, our fellow pagans, are in want of need of aid from us. So what's he saying? He's saying, well, the Jews take care of each other. We don't even we don't take care of anyone. And the Christians take care of each other and all of our poor as well. That was the standard that the church held themselves to and were known for. Here we see four centuries after Christ came. So I'm going to talk to you briefly about some some foundational terms and concepts here, and then we're going to go into what it looks like to do this effectively. If we start with poverty being shalom is broken, we're trying to get to justice the way things ought to be. There are a couple stops, a couple things we need along the way. The first thing we're going to need is we're going to realize that poverty in the heart of the Christian will inspire compassion. Compassion is absolutely something that we have to have. Now, what does compassion look like in Scripture? We see Jesus exercising compassion a lot. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and began teaching them many things. There's a pattern here. Compassion in scripture is not just a feeling that you, you have and then you put it out of your mind. Compassion always leads to action. That's what Jesus demonstrated. We like to think of compassion as sort of a fuel, a fuel on the road to justice. It's what drives our charitable activity. So here we have poverty that's going to inspire compassion. But in order to get to justice in our metaphor, we need one more thing. We're going to need some kind of a vehicle. That vehicle that compassion drives, we call charity. Charity. So charity in scripture, it comes from the Greek word agape. You've heard this word. It means unconditional love, goodwill. Love in action is charity. Now, the thing about this vehicle, though, is there is more than one type of vehicle. So I have a few different types of vehicles there. We see two vehicles that are useful in different contexts. 
You use a semi-truck when you don't use a four-by-four and vice versa, right? Both good, useful in different contexts. And then what's that third vehicle? That doesn't look very useful at all. That jalopy is not going to get you anywhere. And it doesn't matter how pure your fuel of compassion is that you pour into that vehicle. You're never going to get anywhere, right? And sometimes we find that approaches to charity are also ineffective, right? Sometimes you got, you got to use the right one in the right context. Some of them just really don't work at all. I'm just going to let you know that. Okay. So for the rest of the presentation, I'm going to share with you how to identify what type of charity is going to be effective. Okay. So I'm going to, if you'll allow me to mix metaphors a little bit here, we're going to look at three pillars of effective charity and you'll see they're all founded in compassion there. And ultimately, they're upholding justice. But we have three elements of charity that works well. The first element I'm going to talk about is effective charity is authentic. It is voluntarily sourced. What do I mean by this? Well, when I say something is authentic, it has to refer to its motivation, right? So we think effective charity comes from compassion and and not compulsion. Let's imagine this. Let's imagine you had someone who kind of down on their luck, they're homeless, and they're staying in your house for a little while. Is that an act of charity? Well, maybe. If they broke into your house, though, it's probably not. If you kidnap them and you're holding them there against their will, that's not an act of charity either. And even if a third party forces you to let them stay in your home, that's this is also not an act of charity, right? So the motivation uh, and the ultimately you have to be motivated by compassion. It has to be voluntary in order for it to be meaningfully charity. Right. We also think what's important when we talk about authenticity is is the proper agent doing the charity. Right. So if a part is authentic, it came from the real manufacturer. Right. It's not a knockoff. And I think the agent of charity, the primary group that God calls to exercise charity biblically is the church. Let's look at a few places in scripture. First John three seventeen. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? This is a famous passage, James one twenty seven. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. Matthew twenty five, and the king answers them truly i say to you as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers you did it to me so clearly if we were to take out all the passages in scripture that command us to help others the bible would be a much thinner book right god expects the church to be a part of this and it's my observation that this cannot be outsourced and if you want some proof for this just think about a couple of the other responsibilities that the church has and imagine what would happen if we tried to outsource them what about, uh, let's say, discipling the, the youth, discipling the next generation? If public schools started discipling kids, would you get rid of your youth program, right? What about preaching the gospel? What if the government started doing public service announcements and billboards with the gospel on them? Would you say, oh, we don't need to do our outreach anymore. The government's got that covered. No. And I think you might even be a little suspicious about the theology, <laughs> That might be in the government official version of the gospel, right? Right. And that's that's okay. So the problem is, though, I think we as the church have outsourced our responsibility to be charitable. So let's just take a quick look at how that's working out for us. 
We'll just look at the war on poverty. That started in 1964. We recently passed the 50th anniversary. In that time, we spent $22 trillion. So, all right, we definitely care as a nation. We definitely have put some effort into this. And we see that over the years, we've been spending more and more per capita every year. At this point, the, the total government spending, federal, state, and local, for every person in poverty is about $22,000 per person in poverty per year. So there is no lack of trying on the government level, right? So maybe that's okay. Maybe we're making a big dent. Let's see what the dent looks like. This is what the poverty rate looks like starting about in 1966 when the, the war on poverty would have kicked in through the 50-year anniversary. Not much of a change, despite the fact that we have put a lot of effort into it as a nation, haven't made much of a dent, right? So... If you felt like the government had that one covered and Jesus didn't need to be a part of it anymore, think again. Now, why might that be the case? Well, because I think the real solutions, if we think about poverty as being fundamentally about a breakdown of relationships, the real solutions are going to have to be tailored to the root issues of the person. They're going to have to be individualized. They're going to have to be relational. You can't do relational transformation without relationships, right? But as somebody who spent nine years working for the government in one particular context, I can tell you that the government has to be standardized. They can't treat everybody differently. They have to be bureaucratic. They're really good at transactions, but not so much at transformation. You know, you think about this. Soviet central planners had the task before them to set 24 million prices centrally. That was that was one of the jobs they had, and, and they had a really hard time doing that, right? Well, in our country, we have roughly 35 million people living below the poverty line, and if the government were to be successful, they would have to tailor a relational solution to 35 million people, and that is something that is very difficult for a higher-level authority to do. There's another principle that I think we should keep in mind. It's the principle of subsidiarity. Subsidiarity just means to solve a problem at the most local level possible first, right? So think about concentric circles of responsibility around an individual. Let's say I lose my job. The first person responsible at the middle of the circle is myself. I should be involved in finding a new job. And then the next level up is maybe my friends and family. And then the next level up is the church, and the maybe local nonprofits, right? And the next level up, maybe the local government gets involved. And then finally, maybe the national level government gets involved. But we start at the middle of the circle. Why do we do that? We subsidiarity works very well because it uses local knowledge and existing relationships. This is a story we like to share. Just a man who came through the mission named John. And you can see kind of a before and after of John. When John showed up and sat down with James uh, just to do a regular intake, James asked him, John, where's your family? And John said, well, I don't really, yeah, I don't really have any family. I don't stay in touch with anyone. No, where's your family, John? Well, I guess I have a mother, but I, I haven't talked to her in years. She doesn't want to talk to me. Well, do you have her number? Well, no. So James gets her name, gets her, uh, you know, kind of the town she's in, looks up her number, calls John's mom. Hi, John's mom. I have John here. You want to talk to him? Turns out she did. Turns out she was overwhelmed with joy to hear from her son that she hadn't heard from in a decade. And it turns out within a couple of weeks, John's sister got on a plane, flew out to pick John up and bring him home. And that was the start of a transformation for him, starting at that most local level, even before the church, even before the, the rescue mission. 
how's, how's your family? You know, is your family involved in your story? Right? That's the concept of subsidiarity. It's very powerful. Subsidiarity is God's way. Subsidiarity is a concept we see in scripture. So we see at the individual level, Paul instructs that you should work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So the Bible teaches the individual has responsibility. The family also has responsibility. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And check this out in first Timothy chapter five, 16. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. So even before the church was willing to help, Paul instructed that the family should be doing all that they sh- they can as well. And of course, the church We see we're supposed to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And we actually see the church doing this in Acts chapter 6. We know about it because they had a complaint about it. But when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So the church was stepping in to provide for people's material needs as well, but in order, in order of subsidiarity. The Bible assumes that this is how we do our charity. When you look at scriptures about charity, you see a whole lot of you and your share your bread with the hungry. Bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked, cover him. You don't see a lot of when you see somebody in trouble, vote for somebody every every two or four years to solve their problem. And you're done here. That's that's not really (laughs) the biblical model. Right. We have to get involved at the individual and at the collective level. So that's what I mean when I say true charity is authentic. It's done for the right reason. It's done for compassion and it's done by the right agent. Ultimately, subsidiarity is being honored and God's people are doing all they can first before appealing to a higher level intervention. Second concept I want to share with you is that effective charity is accurate, accurate or challenge oriented. So when we talk about accurate, we're just talking about hitting the mark, right? And so what's the mark or the need in this situation, I got a, a gentleman here has got a sign that says we'll work for food. Well, I don't know. It could be that he needs food. It could be that he needs work, right? Or most likely his need is probably not on his cardboard sign at all. That's, that's usually where the real need is. It's not, it's not even in the fine print, right? I had a, a woman from another community shared a story. She, she went up to a man with a sign that said family in need, anything helps. She gave him a few bucks. A businessman walked up in a suit, wrote the man a check for $300. And she was excited and kind of excited with him and said, wow, this is, this is going to take care of your need for your family, right? And he's like, yeah, this is great. The next day she comes back, the same man's on the same corner with the same sign, family in need, anything helps. Now, I don't know what his need was, but clearly it was more than what was on his sign, right? It's more than he would even tell you about, right? So we have to meet that real need. And fundamentally, the base need that everybody has is relationship, right? So these, these relationships come back again. We want everybody to be connected to God, connected to uh, have a healthy relationship with themselves, others, the rest of creation. That's the fundamental need. So here are some different contexts, some different maybe vehicles of charity, ways to think about this right response to the need. If you remember nothing else, 
a year from now and you remember these three words and what they mean, you will have learned something very important. Okay, so relief, rehabilitation and development. If we start with a person who's going through their life, they might hit a crisis. Maybe that's a house fire or domestic abuse or something like that. That's going to put them in a crisis situation and they need relief. They need urgent and temporary provision of emergency aid to reduce immediate suffering. That's the Good Samaritan, the guy on the road to Jericho, right? Beat up on the side of the road. He didn't need the Good Samaritan to ask him a lot of questions. He was unconscious anyways. He wouldn't have been able to answer him. So he just needed somebody to come along, help him out where he was, right? But that's not where people should stay. Ultimately, people move on from relief. They move to rehabilitation, which is where you're trying to restore people to their pre-crisis condition. So we saw that with the, the Good Samaritan. He puts the guy up in and in. But ultimately, the thing about rehabilitation is you start to become a part of the process, right? So that guy had to get out of bed in order to be rehabilitated. That was part of what he had to do. And if somebody is, say, recovering from a natural disaster, they can probably do some of the work to rebuild their own home, right? They have to participate in their recovery. And then development is the next stage. That's just when you're helping somebody move above, higher, to a higher level of life, more closer to flourishing, to shalom than they've ever been before. And relief or rehabilitation and development both require that the person is a part of the process. You cannot do development to someone. You can kind of do relief to someone, but you can't do rehabilitation or development to someone. Here's our problem. The majority of U.S. cases are treated as relief situations, but the majority of cases actually are not relief situations. The majority require some kind of rehabilitation or development, which is why the authors of One Helping Hurts pointed out that one of the biggest mistakes that North American churches make by far is applying relief in situations in which rehabilitation or development is the appropriate intervention. So how do we figure out what situation someone is in? And then if they need development, how do we help them develop? We're going to go through these things in a little more detail. We're going to talk about function-focused categorization. And we're going to talk about challenge. So function-focused categorization, kind of a mouthful here, but it's really a pretty simple concept if you contrast it with what we normally do. What we normally do is we ask dysfunction-focused questions. We ask problems about what's wrong with you. When somebody comes in and wants help, we say, okay, what can't you do? What don't you have? Prove to me you're poor. Prove to me that you're really sick and can't work. Great. Now we've proven that they have problems. We, we already knew that. But what you need in order to determine whether they need real relief or rehabilitation or development is you need to ask function-focused questions. What can you do? What do you have? What can you make? What dreams and goals and aspirations has God given you? What are you willing to do to get those things into action? Because when you only ask about people's problems, you're always going to use a disaster relief sort of model. Now, sometimes that's appropriate. Like maybe these people, maybe their houses are flooded here, so they don't really have time to participate or answer a lot of questions. They're just trying to salvage their goods and they just need somebody to give them some rice. However, when you ask people what they can do, sometimes you'll find that they can do something and you'll realize that you need some kind of a different model than just a disaster relief model. Here's a different model for food. This is a food co-op model. So a food co-op, 
works with the same kind of people who would usually come to a food pantry, except instead of just having them go through a line and get things, they become members, they sign some kind of membership agreement, they pay a few bucks a month, some, some low dues, and then they show up and they do the work that volunteers would traditionally do in a food pantry, but they do it to help each other. So they're a part of a club, a community. Now what you see is different about this than the disaster relief picture you saw is that all these folks look busy. They look engaged. They look like they are, they have an opportunity to connect with others, right? I'm working with a church in another community that's transitioning from a food pantry to a food co-op because they realize most of the people they had coming through were not in a short-term disaster. Most of the people were in some kind of a long-term situation and they had capacity and they could do something. In general, the concept that we use when we want to help somebody develop is we offer them challenge. Challenge is just anything that requires effort. Now, that could be an opportunity to work like water gardens. You've got those bracelets made at water gardens over there in their little social enterprise. It could be an opportunity to work, maybe work for money. You know, It could be something that just helps the person. It could be goal setting. Let's you, you set goals for yourself. As you achieve them, we'll give you a boost along the way, right? So you're just helping yourself here, but there's a challenge involved in that. Maybe a chance to learn a skill, maybe some kind of partial or subsidized payment, right? Why would we use challenge? Well, it's quite simply because challenge develops. And this isn't about treating people in poverty as being different from the rest of us. It's about thinking of them as just the same as the rest of us, right? And for all of us, this is true. If you want to go to school, you want to learn learn a new skill, you want to build character, you're going to have to do something hard, something challenging. When I was in the Army, we climbed a lot of rope nets. And surprisingly, it's not because there were many rope nets in combat situations. Actually, there were very few rope nets in combat situations. But it was just about making us tougher, right? Building character, challenging us. So... What's the value of challenge? Well, in the words of Robert Lupton, who's a 40-year veteran of this, learned a lot of this the hard way, actually wrote the book that inspired James to make his change. It's not unloving to expect people to do their part. Just the opposite. It is cruel to send the message that a person has nothing of worth to offer. One way giving tends to make the poor objects of pity, which harms their dignity. It also erodes their work ethic and produces a dependency that is unhealthy for both the giver and the receiver. But who cares what Robert Lupton says? See what the Bible has to say, right? So let's look at the Old Testament, how God saw fit to take care of the poor. Here we see in Leviticus, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord, your God. Now, this is interesting because if you look at gleaning in the Old Testament, there's a lot of work to turn wheat in the fields into bread. You've got to harvest it. You have to separate the wheat from the chaff. You have to mill the wheat. You have to make the bread. Now, wouldn't it have been nicer if God had just told the Israelites, make some extra loaves of bread and give them to the poor? No, God used challenge. God expected the poor to be a part of the process of gathering the wheat, milling, separating the wheat from the chaff, all of this work. Another method that God used in the Old Testament was the interest-free loan. That was the primary way you were supposed to help somebody in need, offer them an interest-free loan. Sometimes it would be forgiven under extreme circumstances. But in general, the observation was you have dignity. We can help you out. 
you can pay it forward. That was the way God decided to take care of the poor in the Old Testament. Now, what about the New Testament? This is a concept that is in the New Testament as well. In the words of Paul, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Now, this would probably be kind of rude if I said it, but I didn't say it. <laughs> Paul said it, right? And he's talking inside of a body of believers here, but he said, look, everybody needs to do what they have the capacity to do. That is the first step, always. What if we ignore this, though, and we say, ah, we're just going to be a little nicer than Paul was? Um, what you run the risk of is what Robert Lupton observed is the five steps to dependency. First time you give something to someone, you help them out with their power bill. Wow, I appreciate this so much. This is great. The second time, anticipation. Oh, you're going you're gonna to do this again, right? Expectation. I'm just going to go ahead and put this into my little plan that I can count on this bill being taken care of. And then entitlement. Well, that money's for me. Who else would it be for? You need to take care of this bill for me. And then the last step, which is the saddest of all, is dependency. Because at dependency, a person honestly lose sight they lose sight of the fact that they even have the capacity to provide for themselves or their family, right? That's a situation that many people have found themselves in. So, one-way giving should be limited to crisis, relief, situations. This is the observations of a man who grew up in poverty himself and tried to give back, but realized maybe the way he was giving back wasn't the most helpful. He said, I remember one day looking at the long line of people coming for food, and it dawned on me that I was seeing the children of those I had been giving food to for many years coming themselves now for food. And on that day, I discovered I was a part of the problem, not part of the solution. I was helping keep people more or less well-fed, but still in the bondage of dependency. And this is not the flourishing that God wants us to call people to. That is why we think that effective charity is going to meet the real needs. It's going to be challenge-oriented when development or rehabilitation is the actual need. Last element we're going to talk about is that true charity is actualized or outcome-driven. So actualized is just a big word that means to be made real, to be made actual. Let's make it actually happen, right? In charity, we're talking about what we're trying to accomplish in the long run. The things that we are trying to accomplish in the long run, we in broad terms call them outcomes, right? So things like salvation, spiritual growth, stable families, social networks, education, housing, all these sort of things are long-term sort of goals. Now, these have to be differentiated from our outputs, which are the things we do, right, our activities. So we might have a benevolence program. We might teach a finance class, distribute food. Those things can be fine. Um, but ultimately you can measure them all day and never know whether you're making an impact, right? So just to connect these two ideas, if you have an organization that exists to help people find employment, the outputs, we held job skills training for 35 men and women. Great. That's good. But we ultimately need to see outcomes. 80% of graduates obtain sustained employment. Okay. So that's an example of how outputs and outcomes connect. A lot of people are just measuring their activity. That is a mistake. 
big ministries do it. The government does it. All kinds of people do it. This is a government program, SNAP, that says one important measure of a program's performance is indicated by the fraction of people that actually participate, which I guess is true. But that's not a very useful measure of a program's performance. Just because you got everybody to participate in your food pantry uh, doesn't mean that it's doing any long-term good, right? Private organizations make the same mistake. You've got biggest feeding organization in America that's like, oh, we give away 4.3 billion year, meals a year. Well, that's nice. But if this is all you look at, then you're going to end up with policy that just promotes giving more away, right? And I think this is a mistake. So I'll just give you some practical examples here. We're going to zoom in on this outcomes and outputs card from Water Gardens Ministry. Now, there's nothing wrong with measuring outputs. So you're going to see some outputs and some outcomes, some long-term stuff on this. So what do you think this one is? Number one, 14,000 nights of shelter. Is that an output or an outcome? Yeah, that's an output. What about 110 baptisms and conversions? That's an outcome. 1,600 food boxes. I'd say that's an output. Yeah. 55% of residents found employment. Outcome. 87% of goals met by shelter guests. Outcome. And then 558 meaningful connections to church, family, or mentors. That would be an outcome as well, right? So, why do we have to care about this? Well, ultimately, there are two reasons why you can participate in charity. Okay, the first reason is because it makes you feel good. And I'm pleased to tell you that if the reason you participate in charity is because it makes you feel good, you do not have to care about outcomes. Um, I saw this ad pop up on my computer the other day. Give blood, get bragging rights. Okay, it's a good good example. Well, if all you care about is the bragging rights, it doesn't matter what they do with the blood. All right, they can dump that. They can dump that right out when they're done. Right. But I don't think that's what God calls us to. In our charity, right? So the other basic reason to give is because, because you care about other people, because it helps them. And if you have this kind of other centered charity and you're following the golden rule, then you're going to care about outcomes. So I get this question from time to time. Can we just do our best and leave the rest to Jesus? Well, I agree, but I got do our best in quotations because usually what people mean by that is not our best, our best. They just mean kind of do something kind of do throw something at the problem and call it good. And if I tie this back into do unto others, what you would have others do unto you, let's just ask ourselves in our own personal lives. Do we care about outcomes? Who cares if the plumber fixed my toilet as long as he tried? (laughs) Doesn't matter if my child learns to read as long as his teachers did their best. Doesn't matter if the worship leader can hold a tune as long as she means well, right? No, in our lives, we care about outcomes, right? So I think we ought to care about them in the lives of people that God has called us to serve and to disciple. Now, it is a valid question. Do we really control the outcomes, though? Because, of course, we see Paul says this. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Now, of course, the context of this is personal evangelism. It's not specifically about poverty alleviation, but I think there's a good point here. We don't entirely control the outcomes. That's true. But let's think about it like uh, a surgeon. Does a surgeon entirely control the outcome of a surgery? I would say no, because a surgeon can do the same surgery well on two different patients 
one dies and one survives, right? So that's possible. However, have surgeons improved their average outcomes over time? Would you rather have an open heart surgery in 1960 or today? I think today, because surgeons do have some level of control over that, right? And we see this even in Paul's evangelism. He used different methods in different places. Clearly, Paul realized that he had some influence, even if ultimately God was the only one who could really make a change in someone's life. That's it. That's the basic concepts that I wanted to share with you today. Just to run over in brief, we're starting where shalom is broken. We're starting with poverty. And that's going to inspire compassion, which is what should be driving our vehicle of charity, compassion and action, finally to get us to our destination of justice, how things ought to be, shalom, thriving, what God wants for us. And then if we think about the principles that make charity effective, we want our charity to be for the right motivation. We want it to be using the principle of subsidiarity, the right agent doing all they can first. We want our charity to be accurate. We want to realize whether the need is relief, rehabilitation, and development. If development, we're asking questions about what people can do, and we're offering them challenge. And then finally, we want our charity to accomplish our long-run objectives to the best of our ability, measure what we can, do whatever we can to make sure our programs actually work. So where does this leave you? If you want to learn more, your church is a member of the True Charity Network. We have a great online course that goes through seven marks of effective charity. Your church has uh, a, some free access codes to that, which potentially somebody uh, in your church could use. Um, if you want these slides, you give us your email at the back. We'll give you the slide deck, send you a little more information as well. Ultimately, I would challenge you to be the solution. Right. So true charity or true charity network. We try to do that. That's what I do. We help churches and nonprofits make their programs better. But wherever you are, whatever ministry and, of course, this church that you're involved in, God doesn't need more armchair quarterbacks. You know, I don't like to speak for God, but I'm pretty confident that that he would agree with that one. God needs workers who want to get in the field motivated by compassion Stirred to see the fields harvested, to see people flourish, to see people develop their relationship first with God, but ultimately with with others, with the rest of creation that God intends. This is what God calls his people to. It is a privilege and an honor to be a part of it. Thank you so much.